the bud finally opens into a monstrous flower. Its petals are the colour of blood. At first sight, it might be mistaken for a dead animal. This is Rafflesia, the corpse flower. A metre across, it's the world's biggest flower. From its centre comes the pungent odour of death. That, of course, is David Attenborough, exactly the guy to kick off season two of Anthropomania. He's the most prolific, the best-known nature presenter in at least a generation, and he's talking about a giant plant that looks like a dead animal and smells like it, too. I feel like I can smell that flower from here, you know, or is that last night's chicken bones in the garbage? With that pungent odor, folks, we welcome you back to Anthropomania Season 2. You just heard my lovely co-host, the one and only Jay Ingram, and I am Nikki Wilson. I can't wait to dive into today's episode. In true Anthropomania fashion, we are putting the human relationship with other living things under the microscope. (laughs) Right. And we did have a great Season 1. We had... Hummingbird taxidermy? Yeah, we had a garter snake with a bad personality. Ouch. And you can listen to the whole first season anywhere you find podcasts. And this season promises to be even better. But why is David Attenborough here today, Jay? Well, he is likely not just the world's best-known nature documentary host. He's probably the world's best-known TV presenter, period. And that's why we're here. In episode one of Anthropomania... Are nature documentaries good for nature? What sort of impact do they have, if any? And do the real stars, the wildlife, get anything out of it? Like, are they a tool for conservation, or are they just entertainment, or can they be both? You know, I think it's not just as simple as saying, yes, they're good, or no, they're bad. Do you remember the first wildlife documentary, Nikki, you ever watched? Yes, I do, because I would watch it sitting on this orange carpet at my grandma Dolly's that I really loved, (laughs) and it would come on after Disney. We'd be there for dinner every Sunday night, and it was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And what I really remember about it is there was a lot of, like, lion on zebra. (laughs) A lot of death. (laughs) What about you, Jay? Oh, so it's funny you mentioned Disney, because my first memories of any nature program was a Disney nature doc hosted by or narrated by a guy named Winston Hibbler. And it was called Nature's Half Acre. In 1951, it won an Academy Award. It's only 32 minutes. I watched it again a couple of days ago. And you know, there were two things that quickly I noticed. One, they're very careful to state that it is completely authentic, unstaged, and unrehearsed. That's an important point that we'll get to later. But the other thing was the heavy use of music. Every animal or bird or insect movement was replicated by the music. So if a mother bird is feeding her youngsters and jamming food into them one after the other, pack, 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 the music was going da, 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 da. And of course, there was the wonderful voice of Winston Hibbler. 
Okay, but Hibbler Schmibbler J, because today we have Sir David Attenborough. The clip we heard off the top is Sir David describing the odiferous corpse plant from the latest BBC doc called The Green Planet. Now, BBC docs are famous for their rare and beautiful cinematography. We were lucky enough to talk to director Paul Williams about how he got to film this scene. The corpse flower is one of the most remarkable plants on the planet, I think. It's it's a real science fiction monster. And we wanted to film it opening where it goes for this giant bud, which is like the size of a basketball. And these huge petals open to be a meter across. And it's beautiful from one perspective, but it's also incredibly morbid and grisly from another mm-hmm. perspective because it looks like a dead animal. And so first of all, we had to find one that was ready to open. And I was in Borneo and a scientist called me up and he said, I found a bud in the middle of the forest. Get here quick. So we headed over as fast as we could. And we set up seven time-lapse cameras around this bud, hoping that in the next 24 hours it would open. And we have all sorts of wonderful robotic contraptions that that we've devised for this series. They, They capture this amazing scene. And I think it's quite remarkable because it just shows a monster waking for the first time, ready to attract flies, which it does so in order to pollinate itself. The resources, the incredibly hard work, the patience, but, you know, especially the resources. I saw that firsthand in Africa at Gombe, the forest reserve that Jane Goodall is famous for. And a camera guy named Mike Heenan and I were there for Discovery Channel. This is like 20 years ago. And we had one day on Discovery Channel budget to shoot a story about the chimps. And so we really only had one choice. Traditionally there, every day, two trackers choose a chimp and follow that chimp through the forest and make notes of everything that chimp does. So they have these volumes about chimp behavior. And we thought, okay, we'll follow the two trackers. We ended up following a chimp named Patty, who unfortunately doesn't like staying to the trails. So at times Mike was dragging his, you know, 20 kilo camera through the forest. But We got it. That was a a story that was a day, and we had a day. And the night before we left, a BBC camera guy checked in, and his job was to shoot a group of chimps killing and eating a monkey. Now, I can't really fully express to you how challenging that would be. First of all, to find a group of chimps. We never saw more than two together. It's, it's, you know, it's acres and acres and acres of jungle. And secondly, to find those two chimps capturing a monkey, catching a monkey, and then eating it. So I never found out how long he was going to be there, but it, it just said to me, we didn't have nearly the resources that the BBC had. Yeah, like just imagine how many days he had to sit there to get that. And I'm sure he's just sitting in like a sweaty, at times mosquito-infested forest. Well, I mean, I don't know, you'd know better than me. Uh, The sweat part was, I had to do a stand-up at the very beginning where, you know, you sort of introduce the scene and what you're doing. And I, later, when we looked at the tape, there were these giant patches of sweat on my shirt. But there were (laughs) snakes and, you know, it uh, it was pretty amazing. But anyway... It showed what the BBC is capable of doing. But let's let's set the table here, Nikki. What else besides big-budget BBC docs qualify as nature documentaries? Yeah, well, the BBC is a public broadcaster, just like our own CBC, think the nature of things. 
But you also have privately funded documentaries like Seaspiracy, for example. It had some really important messages about overfishing, but was widely criticized for not properly contextualizing some of their interviewees and for spreading misinformation. And then, of course, there are things like Tiger King, which, to be honest, Jay, I'm not even sure can be (laughs) considered a wildlife documentary. Yeah, like, don't get me started. I agree, Nikki. I don't even think it's a good people documentary. But it does have people in it, obviously. It's all about them. And yet some nature documentary makers are criticized for never including footage of humans to try and make it look as natural, in quotes, as possible. But, of course, that's rarely true on Earth these days. What about my octopus teacher? Now, that is the reverse. The guy, Craig Foster, was front and center. In fact, some critics hated that the focus was on his midlife crisis motivation to create the documentary. Here's a lovely quote. He's so eager to believe that this octopus is grateful for his presence, that they need him as much as he's grown to become dependent on their imagined love. Pretty harsh. eh? Others argued that it's a common mistake to imagine that we could even dream of knowing what an octopus's thoughts, moods, and feelings are. Now, when I watched it, I have to admit, I was totally centered on the octopus's behavior and the very wonderful and curious things that it can do. So Craig being out there worrying about his life didn't bother me at all. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I was watching it. Sometimes, you know, my inner biologist kicked in and I was wondering, should he be that close to her? Should he be going to visit her every day? Um, But, you know, uh, I was also incredibly swept away by the film at times. And um, to be fair, Foster isn't just some guy out for a swim. He's a naturalist and the co-founder of Sea Change, and that's an organization that aims to support conservation in the Great African Sea Forest, and they have the support of heavy-hitting conservation groups like the World Wildlife Fund, and I'm sure his supporters very much appreciated the response of millions of people like my friends and family, that were quite taken with the story on all levels. In fact, many of my family and friends don't even eat octopus now. I mean, not that they were gobbling them down before, but it really was a line in the sand for them. Well, if uh, nature docs can make you stop eating something, I'm waiting for my turnip teacher. So Mm. I never have to eat turnips again. And And my salary teacher. Motivation, though, is really what we're talking about. What motivates... real variety of people to make nature documentaries. You know, I talked about Nature's Half Acre, the Disney production from the 50s. There, the motivation was pretty clear. Walt Disney did love animals. Walt Disney loved entertaining the crowds. And so, nature docs, it was as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of the people I interviewed, it is, at least at its heart, as simple as that. You know, they wanted to share their love of and their passion for the natural world, and contribute in some way to conservation. One of those people was Anne Prum. Anne has made docs for PBS, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic, among others. But a couple of decades ago, as a student biologist, she crossed paths with the one and only Jacques Cousteau. My name is Anne Prum, that's P-R-U-M, and I am a producer and cinematographer, mostly focusing on wildlife. 
By the way, Anne was in a cafe on a break from filming in the Costa Rican jungle. So you'll probably hear some colorful background cafe noise. I was uh, still in college, so still in my undergraduate, and I got a summer job working in the Manu Park in Peru, which is a big Amazonian park the size of the state of Connecticut. And there was a research station there called Cochacashu, still there. And like the first wave of tropical researchers from the United States were there. John Turborg, Louise Emmons studying jaguars, Al Gentry studying tropical plants. And I was there as a research assistant on a bird project with a Princeton graduate student. And Jacques Cousteau was doing a film about the Amazon, a three-part special, and his, one of his crews came in. And there was a definite tension between the film crew and the biologists. And the biologists trying to like keep the film crew from disturbing the animals that they had worked so long to habituate to human presence so they could get their data. Like they had habituated river otters and spider monkeys to not be afraid of people because in the past they'd been hunted by local people for food. Uh, and the Cousteau team was very sort of pushy, pushy, pushy about getting close and getting this, this footage. And as a young person observing that conflict, I thought, huh, you know, that seems like a pretty easy bridge to to build between these two professions. Everybody wants the same thing. And it was one of the motivators for me to start. And then I went out with the Jacques Cousteau film crew. That's where the seed was planted for me of uh, wanting to be a wildlife filmmaker. Since then, Anne's won two Emmys for her documentaries and been nominated for six more. You know, so much of the work of the nature doc producer is waiting and hoping. Patience, right? Case in point, while she was in the jungle in Costa Rica filming one type of hummingbird, it turned out she was in the right place at the right time to film a completely different, super rare hummingbird she'd been chasing for years. Here we're looking for a, a, a really rare hummingbird called a sicklebill. And it has a scythe-like bill, one of the most curved, long bills in the hummingbird world. And it's been one... I've never actually filmed them before. I've tried and I've missed because they're super rare and they're, they only like this one kind of flower called a heliconia that has a great co-evolutionary story. The flowers have evolved just to fit the weird beak of this bird. A lot of our work is based on the work of scientists. We really stand on their shoulders. I can't say that enough. So we actually came here to film another hummingbird and there was a young man here, Anthony, who was like, hey, I know where there's a lot of sicklebills feeding. And we all just, our eyes popped. And we're like, great, let's go. And he's like, oh, yeah, and I also have a nest of a, you know, coppery-headed emerald. So, you know, those were things that we didn't, quote, unquote, plan for. Each one of us takes a different heliconia patch. And we wait. It's a lot of waiting and staring at that heliconia plant, but being ready. So it's not just idle gazing. You're gazing with you know, intent. So you're just like finger on the trigger, other hand on the focus ring, and you're just waiting and listening. Discipline and passion, right? That's a pretty cool combo. Anne sounds like she's ethical in her approach too, working closely with scientists and researchers to plan her shoots. But it sounds from her meeting with Cousteau that at least not everyone used to be. Yeah, it's a bit surprising Someone else who knows about the ups and downs of filming wildlife is Carolyn Underwood. 
Carolyn spent many years in the field, particularly the Arctic, working up close with animals like whales and caribou. Here is just one incredible encounter that she had. One of the most extraordinary moments is standing on the flow edge. And the flow edge is this platform of ice that is formed when the sea ice begins to break up. And I'm just standing there daydreaming. And then all of a sudden, this bowhead whale puts its enormous head up out of the water right in front of me. And I got drenched in um, krill breath because they're filter feeders. But it was absolutely amazing because this... Here is this huge animal just turned vertical and come up to have, I guess, have a look at the strange bundled up creature standing on the edge of the ice. Carolyn's retired now, but at the time she was a producer with The Nature of Things on CBC. And over the years, it became increasingly apparent that not everyone was on the same page and what was needed was a code of conduct for filming wildlife. I had been involved in, in writing a code of conduct years ago, I guess it was in the 90s, for a group called the Filmmakers for Conservation, which I helped uh, found. And, you know, one of the things that we were trying to do was come up with some kind of simple, but perhaps not obvious to some, rules to filmmakers that they could use on an everyday basis that weren't difficult to assimilate and think that it makes sense that you're not going to cut away all of the branches and to expose the bird's nest so you can see it because, of course, that will allow the predators to come in. So, yeah, so I was involved in how do we keep it simple but make it very clear to independent filmmakers that there are things that we don't want to have happen in the field, that not everything is about getting the shot And at the time, did you feel like you said this was the 90s? Did you feel like there, you know, what you were observing in the field and perhaps others were relaying to you, were there ethical compromises happening that needed to be rectified? Yes, there were always stories about what we would have considered renegade filmmakers who uh, would kind of go to any lengths to get the shot because making a wildlife film where you're getting footage that no one has seen before is what everybody wants to do, but not if it's going to sacrifice an animal's life or the ecosystem or or whatever. And, you know, I think it puts broadcasters in a difficult position because somebody hands them something that's truly amazing. Even places like the BBC, which has a very good reputation, and they have a Bible. I mean, it's a huge you know, three-ring binder thing that tells filmmakers what they can and can't do. But, you know, even for them, it's I think it's extremely difficult sometimes. And then there was the extremely controversial, I think, partly pumped up by the press, where they had used a captive polar bear in a zoo, and they had filmed the mum and her very, very tiny cubs inside that den because they could do it safely. But when it went into the film, it was kind of seamless. So is it appropriate to deceive the audience is the, you know, was the big question. It can be very tricky because you don't want to spoil the magic. The storytelling is the magic. So Carolyn's referring to the BBC doc Frozen Planet came out in 2011 
And that created a lot of backlash because the public felt that they were being deceived by what turned out to be a pretty standard practice, according to the BBC. Namely, slipping in footage to tell a good story, but the footage isn't purely authentic to the situation. And some people were not happy. You know, Nikki, I I give complaints like this, like a a C minus. I mean, yeah, they didn't announce that they'd shot the birth sequence in a zoo because you can't do that in a real polar bear den. That would be tremendously unethical. And I just don't see how viewers are adversely affected by that. Let me give you a much stronger example. Have you heard the legend that lemmings run en masse over cliffs into the ocean and die? Yeah. Yeah, it's common, right? You know how it started? It started on a Disney documentary where, for some unknown reason, they wanted to demonstrate that, even though it never happens. And lemmings are Arctic animals, so they purchased a bunch of lemmings, but not very many, let's say a dozen or so. And they shot in multiple ways, the lemmings scurrying here, scurrying there. They apparently even used a turntable to get them kind of agitated so that they'd spill across the ground looking like they were suicidal. And you know where it was done? It wasn't done in the Arctic. It was, <laughs> it was done in Alberta. And the body of water that they apparently were falling into was the Bow River, which runs through (laughs) Calgary. So, you know, it was completely phony. And just to be fair to the late Walt Disney, there's no real evidence that he knew that his crew was doing that. You know, the other thing is people complain about sound that's added to the production afterwards, like splashes that you wouldn't have heard well at the time. Well... My octopus teacher created lots of sound in the studio that you hear in the film. Right. So there's an important distinction here. In the polar bear example, they are following an ethical code of conduct, and that says you can't harass animals in the wild. But in the lemming example that you pointed out, Jay, Disney was creating falsehoods and sacrificing the truth for entertainment, which is a big no-no. But, you know, regardless... I kind of feel like we have a responsibility as the viewers to be a bit critical about what we watch. Especially if what we're watching is, for want of a better word, an activist point of view, a strong opinion driving the documentary. Critiques of Seaspiracy were motivated by that. They thought a lot of things were being said that weren't entirely fair. But in the end, the important thing is what impact do the documentaries have? Well, a few years after the Frozen Planet uproar, (laughs) Blue Planet 2 was released by the BBC, which led to something dubbed the Blue Planet Effect. Here's BBC director Paul Williams again. Blue Planet 2, which was, I guess, about 10 years ago now, it covered hard-hitting conservation issues such as plastic in the ocean and the problem of plastic. And it tapped into a zeitgeist, an understanding, a realization that we had to do something about plastic. So so there was already a feeling in the public that we needed to to solve the plastic issue. And so what our programs do is they bring it to life. They they show people exactly what the problem is, what the solution is, and that 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 empowers people to actually make a difference. And of course, on the back of the of Blue Planet, there's this thing called the Blue Planet effect. You know, research has been carried out to show how people have changed their behaviour. Policy has been enacted using Blue Planet as actual evidence of what can be done if we work together to solve the plastic issue. So, so Blue, Blue Blue Planet did a brilliant job. And of course, with the Green Planet, there's a campaign that 
that, that we've now just started called Our Green Planet, where the series, the television series is one thing, but we are continuing to make conservation films to work with conservationists around the world in order to extend the brand, but use it to empower people and to show the, the solutions, how we can use plants to save the natural world. One of the things that makes this issue tricky is that there's very little independent research done on the impact that docs have on audiences, not just ratings, but do they translate to action? Yeah, and one of the few people who is on a mission to get good data on these questions is Diogo Verissimo. He's a research fellow at Oxford. So you're interested in, in, the, in what moves people to be interested in and maybe even donate to conservation efforts, to be you know, more invested in conservation. Do wildlife documentaries play a role in that? Yeah, so I think maybe the most surprising thing when it comes to answering that question is how little we know, is how, how limited the research is around the impact of documentary. Seaspiracy, for example, which is you know, very famous, created a lot of buzz, right? a lot of conversation around sustainability. And a lot of the media articles around Seaspiracy were based on single individual accounts of, of people who said, oh, you know, I saw it and it, you know, I changed my mind. I'm not going to you know, eat this or do that. And, you know, of course, there's a value to that. And there's a power to the, to the sort of individual narratives, like the, you know, personified narratives. But of course, you have to realize that that is a single individual. And we, it's really, we really cannot take that story and, you know, scale it to the level of a, a population or a region or a country. It's true that there was a big policy change that happened in the UK after Blue Planet 2 came out and bans on single-use plastic really picked up steam. But Diogo's research showed that the impact was restricted to a very specific part of the audience. So we did a little bit of work around Blue Planet 2, for example. We did some experiments around plastic use. We didn't really find an effect. People do know more. You know, they, they, they leave the documentary knowing more but that doesn't impact their, their behavior. But the Blue Planet had some impacts on plastics in the UK, not through changing individual behavior, but through getting um, legislation passed. So I think, in essence, the way that, uh, that the literature supports this, this change happening was that it made plastics and marine pollution an issue that was then something that politicians felt that they could act on and, and get some you know, positive you know, points from their constituents. And so through that some legislation was enacted. So in that sense, it did sort of trigger some change. It was indirect, not through the viewership, but you know, certainly, I think, created some change. And you know, a little bit more on the animal welfare side, for example, we also looked at blackfish, and we did find uh, a, an impact on people's perceptions of SeaWorld, perceptions of captivity. And so, so you know, I do think that documentaries have an impact, but I'm, I'm always surprised that, uh, particularly with the bigger budget productions, there isn't more investment on answering that question. You know, did we move the needle? Did we make a change you know, in the world after this was aired? Traditionally, really, I think, unfortunately, the focus is almost single-handedly on viewership figures. How many people viewed yeah. X or Y? And I think that's really limited, right? I really would like us to push the envelope a little bit more and go beyond that. It's surprising, isn't it, that there's not much research that actually shows people changing behavior after seeing a documentary. And to me, this raises the question, is that the job of the documentarian to change human behavior? I mean, isn't it good enough just to make something people want to watch? 
Yeah, you know, there's a time that I may have thought that, but now I feel a bit conflicted given the state of the world. You've got the biodiversity crisis, the climate change crisis. I mean, do we have the luxury anymore of making media that don't create change? That's a a serious and worthwhile question. But, you know, I can't help but thinking that even as you and I are discussing this, changes in that world are, are happening really quickly. In the last 10 years, maybe a little bit more, social media has completely flipped the script on how we consume content. So, like it or not, five minutes is an eternity for people who get their entertainment on YouTube or Facebook. And... Honestly, more like 30 seconds on Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> so, so what does this mean for the nature documentary of the future? For the BBC, it's not really an issue. If our audiences are anything to go by, then people absolutely love the long-form projects that we are producing. And actually, it's been amazing how The Green Planet has been received. It's been one, one of the highest viewed audiences in Britain, I think, uh, in uh, over a week. 10 million people, around 10 million people have, view, have viewed the shows. So we're estimating that around the world, a billion people will watch the long-form version of The Green Planet. So there's definitely a place for that. But also, you know, the small TikTok, the Instagram stories, uh, you know, even, even images on Twitter, that all adds to The Green Planet's there. So that's a billion people. A billion people. And Paul said that many of their viewers are young. We're talking Gen Z here. And they are reaching out to them both on these longer films, but also on social media. It's pretty striking that Paul Williams of the BBC Natural History Unit sees a place for nature on TikTok. But I guess why not? When there's already such variety available as nature is metal, that's the Reddit subthread that's almost like um, what you used to see as a kid, almost exclusively some animal getting killed by some other animal. Yeah, I think Anne called that tooth and claw. (laughs) Yeah, well, tooth and claw. (laughs) And here's something very different. Erin McGee, who calls herself the lizard lassoer on Twitter, where she'll post a picture and you have to try and spot the lizard that she's photographed. Thousands of people play that game with her. Mm -hmm. And then there's the guys on ASAP Science. Their YouTube channel has over 10 million followers, and they are amazing. I mean, they have incredible reach. So it's clear a lot of young people on social media are serious about getting messages about climate and biodiversity to the masses, and I talked to one of them. Carissa Cabrera is a 28-year-old marine conservationist based in Hawaii, and she has found her niche on TikTok. She's part of a collective of other TikTokers called EcoTalk, and she's achieving these things that long-form doc makers want, like measurable impact and genuine audience engagement. And she's doing it in 15-second chunks. It's pretty amazing thinking about TikTok and how far it's come in the past two years and uh, truly that it's now the leading social media platform. And I believe there was a headline that it's being used more than Google nowadays. Do you think TikTok gives you flexibility in relaying conservation messages that other platforms or even traditional media might not give you? Mm, I think that TikTok is a different format to convey environmental messaging, but it can be really challenging because anyone who works in the field knows that the idea of simplifying a lot of these topics to 30 seconds or less is near impossible. And I think that's why I've 
received so much attention through TikTok because it's something that is needed because of the way that the general public's attention span is developing, but also it's so challenging, right? So how do you feel uh, about that in terms of your use of TikTok? So you do feel like you're breaking out of that echo chamber and reaching other people. Do you hear that in your two-way conversations or do you get that feedback? I have a colleague that I work with in EcoTalk who does disinformation research. Um, Her name is Abby Richards and her handle is Tophology. She does amazing work. And she has shared with me that the way the TikTok algorithm worked is it was really favoring echo chambers for a long time. And after criticism, I think TikTok is working hard to try to break that mold, specifically because it's been such a problem on other social media platforms. So do you think there's going to be a place in the future for those long form films as opposed to the things we see on TikTok that are built for shorter attention spans? Oh, that is a great question because I grew up watching documentary films that changed my life that are two hours or an hour and a half. And I have a soft spot for those and the depth of the story that those types of content can provide. But then I talk to people who are younger than me who would never watch a film that long. And so I think there needs to be both. I think there's always going to be people who are older and are on that cusp like I am that will watch the documentaries. But we need people to be filling the shorter form films as well. You know, Anne Prum told me the same thing. There needs to be room for all different formats and ways to consume nature documentaries. And obviously, BBC big budget films will always find an audience. I agree. The only thing I'd say is that the nature documentary has a very long history and it's still going strong. And whether these much shorter forms will have the same lifetime, I don't know. And maybe we shouldn't even expect them to, because the rate of change in social media is much faster than the changes of TV-making style back in Walt Disney's time. In fact, Diogo Verissimo, the Oxford researcher, agrees with Carissa and the Gen Zers. I really feel that shorter form, and by shorter form, I mean sort of three to five minutes, is really where the future is for this yield. And this is for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first one is that with smartphones and other technology, anyone can produce pretty high quality three to five minutes sort of footage with a bit of effort, right? Now, the currency is video, short form video, and it's sort of perfect for these messages to get communicated effectively. Notice Diogo focused on the smartphone and how its power will drive the making of nature films or videos. That's quite different than the gradual evolution of better cameras and lenses allowing for more detail. Makes me wonder if, in fact, the lifetime for something like, well, say, TikTok could soon be overtaken by better virtual or augmented reality. Imagine you could stroke the fur of the lion Mm -hmm. if you were using (laughs) augmented reality. (laughs) Wow, and the lion reacts. So uh, (laughs) it could happen. I don't know. What do you think, Nikki, of everything that we've heard today? What surprised you the most? Well, I was really taken with Carissa Cabrera and how she uses TikTok. It's not flippant. She wants to get a message out about conservation, and she follows a formula to be as effective as possible just like traditional documentary filmmakers do. So what you see may sound a bit informal, but there's a lot of thought and intent behind that 20-second video. 
And, you know, besides rapid technological change that Diogo mentioned, I wonder if the other thing we might look for is some sort of diminishing importance of fact. Now, you might think I'm crazy, because after all, nature documentaries are full of facts. They're built on facts. But when a filmmaker wants to make a strong point, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see documentaries, and I guess I should put that in quotes, come out that may or may not be completely believable, like Disney's Lemmings all over again, only with perhaps more nefarious goals. <laughs> well, the fact that I didn't even know about Disney and the Lemmings just goes to show you that you need to be curious about what you're watching. You know, ask yourself, who's telling this story and why? Verify some of the claims. Right. Don't be a passive consumer. And if you're really moved by a documentary you've watched, maybe think about doing something in response to that. And I'm curious to all the listeners out there, have you been moved by a documentary so much so that you were willing to change your behavior or take an action based on what you learned in the film? And if you have, please let us know. This has been a pretty fun kickoff for season two of Anthropomania. Our next episode is actually going to be extraordinary. We're going to blow your minds about all things chicken, including pet chickens, the backyard chicken boom, broiler chickens, you know, you pick them up in the supermarket, they look nothing like they did 50 years ago. Big thanks to today's guests, Paul Williams and Prum, Carolyn Underwood, Diogo Verissimo, and Carissa Cabrera. If you're interested in more information on the things we talked about today or our guests and their work, go to our show notes, which you can find by scrolling down on your podcast app. Of course, we love hearing from you. Fill out our listener survey, also found in our show notes, and you can even pitch us an idea and leave us a review, especially if you love it. If you're thinking of sending us a story idea, we are not doing an episode on lemmings. You can find us on social, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Anthropomania. And yes, we are brand new to TikTok, so make us feel welcome, please. Tag us with your favorite nature films, or maybe a TikTok conservation influencer. Tell us about those people you think we should follow. We'll be sharing bonus content from this episode, including Carissa Cabrera's hot tips for a great TikTok post. And over on our blog, anthropomania.com, you can sign up for our newsletter and find a ton of other great content, including articles and ways to get to know the Anthropomania team. So until next time, bye. Bye. <laughs>